Hi, I'm Patty Epler, the editor of Honolulu Civil Beat. Hawaii has the largest population of homeless people per capita in the United States. In fact, it's become such a part of life here in Honolulu that we've gotten used to it. Do we ever stop and wonder about these people, who they are, what brought them to this point in their lives? Recently, one of our reporters did. Jessica Terrell came across a homeless village hidden in the woods out on the west coast of Oahu. But it turns out she had a pretty special reason to spend some time getting to know these people in this place they call the harbor. I'll let Jess tell you the rest of the story. I'd only been living in Hawaii for a few weeks when I found the harbor. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I'd gone out to the leeward coast of Oahu to report on a story. I was really excited to get out of Honolulu. You know, to get away from Waikiki and all the tourist traps. I had no idea what I would end up finding, or that it would lead me to one day pitching a tent in the largest homeless encampment in Hawaii. I was driving through a small and kind of rundown town on my way home when I spotted a few tents and tarps peeking out from a small stretch of woods along the highway. I drove in and started walking around. There wasn't a lot to see from the outside. I saw some roosters and a little entrance to the woods where a few people were gathered. There was a teenage girl filling water jugs at a faucet near this dumpster and some stray dogs kind of just wandering around. I didn't go into the woods because it seemed a little scary. I really wasn't sure what was in there, but I knew that I did want to go back someday to find out. The place just kind of stayed in the back of my head for a few weeks though, until a colleague in the newsroom sent me a link to a television report on a different homeless encampment in Honolulu. Look at this, all of the shopping carts, the bikes. The TV reporter was driving around a couple of streets in the encampment, just talking about what she was seeing as she drove. Lots of tents, a few makeshift structures, some piles of garbage. And uh, the other most shocking is this tent coming up right here. People who are literally living as if it is their true self-standing house. The first thing that bothered us, or really bothered me, was that she didn't get out of her car to interview anyone. But it was also the tone of the report, as if it was horrifying that these people were doing what they needed to just get the most basic of necessities. Probably the most shocking was yesterday, real quick as we head out, footage of a woman taking water out of one of the water pipes. And we don't know what impact, if any, the water was just running everywhere. Who is paying for that? Taxpayers? Is somebody being overbilled? It's unclear. Guys, a lot of questions. So that report kind of sparked a conversation in our newsroom about how should we be covering homelessness? I should probably mention here that I was homeless as a kid. My parents were eccentric bohemians. They raised us on the road, living in boats and buses and tents and sometimes even the beach. We made money by performing together as a family band. You know, busking on street corners for spare change. Mom says one of my first cribs was a little box in the back window of a car that she was living in not long after I was born. I should probably also mention that my family's eccentric lifestyle was pretty well documented. I think some people are nomadic by nature. We had a very interesting life, but not so much by our choice. <laughs> I've created a whole brand new thing. It's not just anyone. We've lived in tents, we've traveled on bicycles, we've lived in trucks, we've lived in buses. That was a clip from a documentary about my family. We were in newspapers and on TV. When we landed in a small town, sometimes reporters would follow us around. And so I really hated reporters growing up. 
it just didn't feel good to feel so exposed all the time, to really feel and actually be so judged by society. So now here I was, a reporter myself, watching the way that other reporters were judging the homeless in Honolulu. And it made me want to do something about it, to try and go back to the woods by the harbor, to try and really get to know who was living there. Waianae is about as much in the middle of nowhere as you can get on a small island. Driving one to three hours each way in traffic didn't seem practical if I really wanted to sort of embed myself there, to do the opposite of a drive-by report. So I had this kind of crazy idea that I would just pack up my apartment in Waikiki, shove everything into a storage unit, and move to Waianae. I'm not sure what my editor thought. You know, Jess, I actually thought this was a great idea. It's not often you get a situation like this where it's kind of like coming full circle, which I think it really was. So it's kind of serendipity, right, that you just happen to be at this spot on this planet at this particular moment, and now you're in a position to tell people something really interesting about these homeless folks and in a way that you can really help these people. I knew almost nothing about YNI aside from a few statistics. It's an area that has a pretty tough reputation. There's not much employment out there, not much in the way of tourist attractions. More than a quarter of the population lives in poverty. Which leads to the YNI we often hear about, challenged by drugs, crime, and poverty. You see a lot of homeless people. Well, that's a sign that uh, the community understands disconnection people have with their family. That KITV news story was one of the few things I knew about YNI before I rented a temporary apartment there. I'd also done a little more research on the homeless camp, and I knew it was a pretty unique place I was going to. There were about 250 people living there at the time. They had a leader and some structures and even some rules. But I was still pretty much going on gut instinct at this point. The sense that if I just drove out there, somehow they would all just welcome me and I would find the story once I arrived. So I packed a few suitcases and put my coffee maker in a car and left Honolulu. It was raining when I arrived. I parked my car in this little unpaved lot near the entrance to the woods. It was muddy and full of puddles. I mean, the backs of my legs were pretty immediately covered with splashes of mud and water as soon as I started walking. It was quiet, almost isolated on that first walk into the camp by myself. I tried to approach a few people, and they weren't mean or rude, but a lot of people were holed up in their tents because it was raining, and they were a little standoffish. So I kind of just said hi to a few people, and then I fled. I got back into my car, and for the first time since I'd pitched the idea of doing this, the loneliness of it kind of hit me. I was getting ready to drive to an apartment I'd never seen before, in this town I'd never really spent any time in before, so that I could get up in the morning and find a way to make friends with people in this kind of dirty and, I'm just going to be honest here, a little intimidating community. And I sort of just sat there in my car for a few moments and thought, What the hell have I gotten myself into here? I spent a lot of time in the first week that I lived on the west side of Oahu, psyching myself up to venture further into the homeless camp. Even though I'd been all energized to move out there and get to know these people, 
Once I got there, I found I was having a surprisingly hard time feeling comfortable persuading people to talk to me. I felt like I was an intruder. Oh, sorry. I'm Jess. I'm a writer with a reporter with Civil Beat. We're an online news site, and I'm just, I moved out here. I'm spending a month or two just getting to know people. I'll see you guys around. Hey, guys. See you later. The harbor camp is tucked into a 19-acre area of woods and brush between a public boat harbor and a high school campus. The main entrance to the camp is a wide dirt path, big enough to drive a car through if it wasn't blocked off at the entrance with concrete. It rained a lot in the first two weeks I was there. I mention that because the rain makes things pretty difficult in the harbor. It turns the dirt paths that cut through the homeless camp into muddy little rivers and lakes. But it also turned out to bring me a little bit of luck. Warren! How you doing? You dry? Okay. The first piece of luck was that Loke took me around with her while she walked through the camp to check on people after a storm. And so I got a pretty good sense of the layout of the harbor community, which had around 130 campsites. Some of the sites were shaded by a thick cover of thorny kiave trees. Others sat along the rocky shoreline, just a few yards from the pounding surf. There were people who lived in very basic makeshift structures surrounded by garbage. Others had spent years planting gardens, building intricate rock walls, and making the place as homey as they could. Most of the people who lived in the harbor were native Hawaiians. The image, though, that a lot of people in Hawaii had of this stereotypical homeless man, maybe a white guy from the mainland, someone with really bad mental health problems, well, that was really inaccurate here. It turned out that Loke, who moved to the harbor after she had a heart attack and lost her job, and then her house, not only lived in the camp, she was a sort of second command in the self-governing leadership structure. Well, we're checking, I'm checking on everybody, making sure everybody's okay. Do you guys make it through okay? We'll survive, you know, that's how it is. Yeah, well, we have another um, round of tarps gonna come out, we're just waiting. The other bit of luck was that because it was raining, and also probably because I'd started bringing coffee with me so that I had something to serve as an icebreaker, a few people started inviting me into their tents to sit with them. That was how I met Adam. Do you want some coffee? No. You sure? Yeah. You want iced coffee? Adam is 19. He's funny and smart. He can be a little snarky sometimes, but it's also clear that he has a really good heart. His family moved on to a beach when Adam was 13, after his father lost his job. I lived on the beach. Wow. <laughs> yeah. With all these other cats. <laughs> so what happened when they came and swept you, like, made everyone move? Everybody didn't have anywhere to go. They came in with tractors and and they really said this time, you're really getting swept. After Adam and his family were swept from the beach, they moved to the harbor encampment. And it was there that Adam ended up sort of getting unofficially adopted by a woman named Twinkle Borge. Twinkle is a stout woman in her 40s who has been homeless for more than a decade. She stepped up as leader of the encampment a few years ago. She lives in a multi-room structure near the main entrance. Some metal pipes and tarp form the roof. It's open on the sides and has little pallet walls and a plywood floor. I started developing a morning routine of going over to Twinkle's with a jug of iced coffee and talking to Adam and a few other extended family members and friends who use Twinkle's place as a gathering spot. So did it rain in your room last night with the... Day? Not as bad as before. I fell asleep. <laughs> and it went into my room, so I was like, okay. <laughs> People started to warm up to me pretty quickly in the camp. I learned that it doesn't take much to get people to become a little less guarded, a little friendlier. 
But Adam was like that pretty much from the start. Maybe because he's outgoing, it's easier to see how bright he is. It took a little longer to see the skills and the warmth of some of the others in the camp. And so in the beginning, I remember thinking to myself, Adam doesn't belong here. As if there were categories of homeless people and some were destined or deserved to live like this and others didn't. I really should know better than to judge people by their circumstances or their looks. I think my brother explains this pretty well in Random Lunacy, a 2007 documentary about our family and the kind of eccentric upbringing we had living on the road. I think as kids we knew that we were freaks. If you looked at us, how dirty we looked, and being on the street and being in obviously unsafe conditions, it would look very crazy. I went into this story hoping to change people's perceptions of the homeless. But in my first week at the harbor, what I realized was that I had some pretty bad misconceptions of my own. I guess I should mention the coffee cup here. The first time I went and sat in Twinkle's tent and had coffee with Adam and a few others, I brought the coffee, but they served it to me in a cup that they'd pulled from a sort of rickety metal shelf of dishes in their kitchen. One of the women in the kitchen was sick. I also knew that the only place people could wash dishes was out in the parking lot at a faucet next to the dumpster. So I sat there for a minute, looking at the coffee cup and feeling a little squeamish and ashamed. The sense of shame really had to do with my father. My dad died in 2011. By that time, he had several claims to fame, including building and sailing a raft across the Atlantic Ocean. There were a lot of really nice and interesting obituaries about him in papers across the country. But there was one that made me really, really mad. The tone of the entire obituary was pretty negative. It also included a quote from a public works official who had come on board one of the rafts we lived on as a kid to meet my father. He brought me coffee in a dirty old cup, the man said in the article. It was so foul, I just wanted to throw it overboard. I couldn't understand why someone would include that in an obituary, or why the public works official could be so rude. If you visit someone and they offer you a cup of coffee, isn't that an act of hospitality, no matter the circumstances? I also doubted it was dirty, stained maybe, but the idea that just because we didn't have running water, we weren't clean, was really condescending. I thought about that quote sitting in Twinkle's tent, looking down at the coffee cup they had offered me, realizing that I had limitations of my own that I'd never really known about, that my own comfort level had really changed in years since I'd stopped living in such circumstances. And suddenly, the cup became really significant, as if this was a test somehow of being a different kind of person or reporter. So I hesitated a little, and then I smiled and started drinking. Then I went home and made myself an airborne and bought some disposable cups to bring back the next day. If my first problem was feeling uncomfortable in the homeless community, I soon started to worry that I was becoming too comfortable. I say that because journalists are supposed to keep a certain distance from their sources in order to remain objective. And the whole idea of this series was to get to know people in a way that would sort of inherently push up against those barriers. I also say that because the more comfortable I got in the camp, the harder it became to feel like I still fit in with the rest of the world. 
I had developed a routine of coming by each morning with coffee and talking to people before going through a little loop of the encampment. When I missed a day at the harbor, people would ask me where I'd been. Hey, Howdy. Howdy is slang for a white person or a foreigner in Hawaii, something that definitely made me stand out in the camp. After a few weeks, I'd spent enough time with people to really see the whole community differently. It's one thing to see a stained or dirty couch and feel uncomfortable touching it, but once you see that couch as Sheena's or Paula's, you don't really think twice about sitting down. Sheena moved to the harbor community a few years ago and had spent hundreds of hours building her little two-room home. It had a large yard and a rock wall, but was close enough to her neighbors to still hear the sounds of a generator from the tent next door. You're looking at pallets to make walls. What is the A-frame made out of? Those pipings, and you just enclose it with the pallets. Put in a few windows, or you take off the boards and it becomes a French window with the four squares. (laughs) When I first met Sheena, she was getting ready to move into a rental house for the first time in 15 years. What would I miss? I'd miss some of the people here. Mainly they're waking up in the morning, everybody says good morning when they pass by. And uh, you've got a schedule for the rest of the day. Get up, straighten out your house, go get water. We have meetings once a month and they let us know what's happening, what things are going wrong and what needs to be cleaned up. I watched as Sheena carefully tended to her yard as she got ready to move out. And I got to see her neighbors through her eyes. Some people seem to be in the camp because of circumstances that really were out of their control. Others had drug problems or had simply made bad life decisions. Whatever brought them here, whatever their troubles or flaws, these people were neighbors and friends to each other. They were more than just the labels that society might place on them. Used to getting up in the morning, you open your front door, your neighbor's raking out in front of her area, generators go off, somebody says, hey, I got breakfast, you want to have some? I'm going to miss that. Getting back to civilization is like Gilligan's Island. You know, the minnow was, was stuck for a long time. My minnow got fixed, so now I'm getting off Gilligan's Island. And it's been a long road. The ships on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan's After a month or so in the harbor, I was starting to feel a little bit like I was on Gilligan's Island, too. It can take more than two hours in traffic to get from Waianae to the newsroom in Honolulu, so I was only going into town maybe once a week for a staff meeting. My husband was in California for work for a few months. And because I didn't know anyone on the leeward coast, the only people I spent time with every day were in the encampment. I was also trying to blend into the background as much as possible in the camp. One afternoon, I was standing in the grocery store in front of a man in a business suit, and I looked down at myself and saw that my legs were kind of covered with dirt and there were stains on my baggy pants. And I felt sort of like I did when I was a kid, just uncomfortable in society. I started hearing that people in the newsroom were making jokes about whether or not I would carry bed bugs back to the office. And of course, that really only added to the feeling of isolation. I went from dreading my visits to the harbor to looking forward to them each morning to checking in with Auntie Joey and maybe playing a round of cards with Adam and his sister. My birthday falls on Mexican Independence Day, so after checking with my editor to make sure I wasn't crossing any ethical lines, I made a few trays of enchiladas and brought them down to the harbor. I didn't want people living there to feel like they had to talk to me because I was bringing them things, especially when the truth was it felt more like a present to me, being able to spend my 32nd birthday sharing Mexican food with people there some of whom had never had enchiladas before. 
Which is not to say that everything was roses in the camp, or that it was always easy being there. Parts of the camp were quite smelly and dirty. Flies were everywhere. One afternoon, I came across a little toddler standing barefoot in the center of a path. His clothes were dirty. His feet and legs were covered in bug bites. His mom was out of sight rummaging through trash in her boyfriend's camp, which just looked like the kind of place that someone who had given up on life would live in. It was just filthy. That day when I left the camp, all I felt was just this overwhelming sense of despair. I got in the car and made the 30-minute drive that it takes to get to the nearest movie theater, and I just sat in the parking lot, crying. I didn't think I could go back. On another day, a man who was probably coming down from crystal meth went on a rampage after his girlfriend left. He smashed up a few campsites and went around screaming and yelling while the camp's leader, Twinkle, rounded up a group of women to confront him and call the police. Adam's older sister and her girlfriend came looking for me and my photographer to kind of keep us out of danger, and we ended up ducking into someone's campsite for a little while to stay out of the fray. It was the fact that I had campsites to duck into that I had people looking out for me, that made it seem okay to pitch a tent in the camp for a night, which was something that really did concern some of my editors. There's a lot of meth users in that camp. That's Bob Ortega, managing editor of Civil Beat. And and had some questions about whether it would be safe for her to stay there alone overnight. And I was really concerned about that too, Jessica. And I think it really helped that you took Bob and I out there and showed us around and introduced us to some of the folks that you had met so that we could be comfortable that you were going to be safe. I set up my tent inside Sheena's vacant structure, which was now partially gutted. It was a little spooky walking around the paths in the darkness. But really, the scariest thing that happened to me over the weekend was Adam's sister and some other teens deciding to play a prank on me, (laughs) hiding in the structure and growling in the darkness while I walked around trying to figure out what was making that terrifying sound. You (laughs) come in and then you turned around? I came in, I heard a growling sound, and I turned around and went right back out. Did I just get initiated into the camp? Is that what happened? Yeah, you family now. Soon after the girls initiated me into the camp, something happened that really changed my motivation for writing the series. Here's Governor David Ige at a press conference in October. I will be issuing an emergency proclamation. There are thousands of our uh, members in our community that continue to be homeless. A little later in the conference, Ige said the state, which had recently cleared a large homeless encampment in Honolulu, would start focusing on other parts of the island, including Waianae. The news sent a little shiver of fear through the harbor and really added a new sense of urgency to the story I was trying to write. It is not my job to make decisions about whether the camp should stay or go, but I did feel like it was my job to make sure that people who are making decisions about this place knew something about it, when most of them would probably never set foot there. If I wanted anyone to get to know these people the way I had, to see them as more than just scary strangers in the woods, I had to get this published immediately. All of a sudden, it felt like I was racing against a ticking clock. During the summer I spent in Waianae, there were homeless encampments all over the islands. 
The state has the highest per capita homeless population in the U.S. What made the community in YNI so different wasn't just how big it was, it was how organized it was. There were people who had lived there for up to 10 years, they had set up their own rules, and they not only had a leader and a second-in-command, but a security structure that functioned much like a neighborhood watch. For the most part, people watched out for each other there, though there were some occasional problems. Twinkle, the woman who was known as either the governor or the mayor, depending on who you talked to, estimated that 75% of the adults living in the harbor were either current or former ICE users. ICE is the local term for crystal meth. It was hard not to judge some of the life choices of people there, but I found that if you spent some time talking to even the chronic drug users, a lot of them were pretty self-aware and insightful about their situation. What I really wanted to share with my readers was that people in even the most awful of circumstances are much more complex than we give them credit for, capable for much more than what we think. We don't steal from each other or anything like that. We look after each other and things like that. If you give us a chance, you know, talk to us, you'll be surprised. I also wondered, really, if even calling it a homeless community was fair. A squatter's village, maybe. A shanty town. But can you really be homeless when you've lived somewhere for 10 years and you've built a little structure for yourself, planted a garden, have neighbors you check in on every day? Loke says no. She's houseless, not homeless. Hawaii is my home. Everywhere I go, my home is with me. Our structures are just different from everybody's home. We don't have a structure like yours, a house house. But we do have one. Houseless is a term she encourages others in the harbor to use as well. It makes a big difference in how people think about themselves, she says. Of course, the community occupies state land. And some people, like the area's state representative Joe Jordan, had some real concerns about the place. She wanted to see the area cleared, a stance she believed could ultimately be for the people's own good. The longer somebody stays out in the elements, it becomes harder and harder to sort of um, get them back to what some people may call a normalcy. As I went into overdrive mode, working late at night for days and days on end, trying to finish the series, I started worrying about a lot of things. I worried about making sure I was fair and balanced, that I was including the views of Jordan and others who were critical of the harbor encampment. I was also struggling to figure out where the line should be between what's important for the story and what about people's private lives should really stay private. I had been there long enough that I knew people had let their guard down around me and often no longer saw me as a reporter, but just simply Jess, the Howley girl who hangs around all the time. That of course had been the point, but for me it raised some ethical questions. And I'd gotten to a dangerous place for a journalist where I was worried about what some of these people would think about what I wrote about them. I had a few meltdowns on the phone with my editor. I had a few meltdowns in the newsroom. And I thought a bit about a scene from the movie Almost Famous where a rock critic, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is talking on the phone to a young writer he's been mentoring. Is it my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. If what I wanted to really convey was that people, whether they live in a house or a tent or underneath an overpass, are so much more complex than we often give them room to be, if I really wanted to change people's thinking about the homeless, I would never accomplish any of that by writing a story where I covered up people's flaws. If I simply wrote about the good parts of the camp, all I would be doing would be painting another one-dimensional picture. 
The stories ran over three days, and the response was mostly really positive. We got a lot of emails from people who wanted to help the harbor. A lot of feedback from people who said they really appreciated getting a deeper glimpse into these people's lives. But mostly, I spent the first few days waiting to hear back from the people in the harbor themselves, from Twinkle, from Adam and his sister. Then, on the third day that the story ran, Adam called. Hi, Jess, this is me, Adam. Everything that is about me, can you take it out, please? I tried to call Adam right back, but he was in an adult ed class and didn't pick up. I went over the stories again, and I knew that everything I had put in was true, but I felt awful that he was so upset, and I didn't know why. I talked to Adam the next day, and by that time he sounded fine. It turned out that he wasn't actually upset with the story. He had been upset because people in the camp were giving him trouble for being so featured in the article. In fact, a few people in the harbor were upset by some of the content of the articles, but what upset them was really unexpected to me. Loke told me a few people were upset about the talk of drugs in the article, but not so much that I had talked about the problem. They were more frustrated with people criticizing others in the harbor instead of talking about their own drug problems. Things started changing pretty quickly in the harbor after the series was published, especially after Joe Jordan went on TV and called for a sweep of the area. Some people panicked, but Loke was only a little concerned. She's always been pretty level-headed about what the future might bring. The future is whatever it is. Destiny will always find you, no matter what you do. Everybody say your future is what you make of it, right? Well, not always. <laughs> you can work all your life to try and get your future set, but there's always a big wrench that's going to be thrown in your way. So every day it's an obstacle for me. Just a matter of figuring if I'm going around it, under it, or over it. After Jordan's TV appearance, there was actually a pretty big backlash from people in the surrounding community who thought the harbor camp should be left alone. And people who had read our series started reaching out to Twinklin Loke to talk about helping the women form a nonprofit to get a more permanent status for the community. A few weeks later, the Waianae Coast Neighborhood Board voted to support Twinklin Loke's leadership, urging the state to help them get a lease for the land. It was a sort of eccentric board member, Ken Koike, who sent me probably the most memorable email after the series. He wrote to tell me he was really grateful for the coverage. He also said he'd never realized how or why I had a connection with the community until he read an article where I talked about my own experiences being homeless as a kid. The letter made me laugh a little, but if I'm being honest, it made me get a little emotional too. Hawaii is now your home, darling, he wrote. From now, you will never be homeless. You will always have a place where you belong with us, out here in Waianae. This has been a Civil Beat podcast. Our producer is Christelle Bosu Rajis. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. And you can read the whole series on the harbor at our website, civilbeat.com.